millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist. I've been to see Pep Guardiola. It wasn't your standard interview. He was, in turn, insightful, humble, forceful, wistful, almost poetic. After that derby defeat, he went on TV to imply that Manchester City won't win the Premier League for the fifth time in six seasons. But Johnny, would you bet against him? I certainly wouldn't. Oh, I think I would actually at the moment. I mean, in general, you know, he's the biggest winner out there. Manchester City are a, are a, are a machine. And I find it strange to almost be saying that I, I, I bet against him. But I just think, I think first of all, Arsenal are in such a, a strong position. And, and are playing so well, and I've, I've got so many sort of factors that are aligning for them. But I think principally, this is something slightly wrong with Manchester City. I don't think this is the the city that we've seen over the last five, six years under Guardiola, where there's a guaranteed level of performance every week, where their patterns have pretty consistent success against teams. They looked at the derby to me like a team that's struggling a, a lot of the game for rhythm and the, and they were certainly like that in midweek before that against Southampton it's hard to put your finger on I mean it's possibly a number of factors the imposition of Haaland brilliant player but has changed the dynamic I think players are aging a little bit and maybe there's just a bit of mental tiredness that the same thing that we see from Liverpool from experienced players where their intensity is ebbing and flowing at the moment for me. The, the the pace at which they're moving the ball, for example, is coming and going. It's not as consistent. And I just wonder if it's to do with just a team that's been so powerful, so consistent for so long. It's just hard to keep raising the, the peaks of performance again and again and again for any team. The fact they've done it for six years has been incredible. But they do look like, to use that dreaded word, a team that's nearing perhaps a transition stage. And while all of that's going on, Arsenal are having this brilliant season. So for me, Arsenal will be the favourites for the title right now. Mm. He has said, Paul, hasn't he, that his time at City would be incomplete without winning the Champions League. They've got a Ribble Leipzig in the last 16 coming up. Do you get any sense that his focus is shifting towards that competition? Well, I know we have this discussion um, every year, Mike. Uh, each time they win the Premier League, we ask ourselves, well, is the priority this season going to be the Champions League? Um, uh, the problem with that is that if you play as averagely by their standards as City currently are, you undermine the case that you're going to win the Champions League, that you can win it because confidence declines, consistency declines, doubts creep in. As John said, the intensity level isn't quite there. So it's difficult to sustain the idea that, you know, playing below your standards in the Premier League is preparation for winning the Champions League. And I look at them at the moment and don't see a Champions League winning side, I must confess. So if they think they're getting closer to it by having a an offish season in the Premier League, I think they're possibly deluding themselves. Mm. They've got a home game against Spurs on Thursday, Johnny. On the face of it, given you know Tottenham being a 
pretty broken team at the moment. It's a good opportunity for them to actually restate their intentions, isn't it? It is actually because of the the particular opponents. I mean, there's almost nothing better than winning a big game when a big game's actually easier than it should be in terms of confidence. And and Spurs look that like they really are there for the taking. I mean, Arsenal absolutely dominated them in, in the first half of the derby at the weekend by playing the type of football Manchester City will try and unfurl. You know, Spurs are so in their shell at the moment that they were happy in that game against Arsenal to sort of just cede as much territory and possession and width as Arsenal wanted. And you know City are going to try and do the same things. But as I alluded to earlier, this is a, this is, you know, we're used to City teams that win one game and then pile on eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 games into a long winning streak. And even if they get the victory against Spurs, and I actually expect them to do so, I don't see them being that team that's going to go on these long runs like they have done the seasons before. But they certainly need to win in order to put some pressure on on Arsenal and and, and get themselves, quote-unquote, back in the race. Mm. We're talking managers quite substantially in this edition of the podcast, Paul. Antonio Conte, at what point for Spurs does he become the problem rather than the solution? Well, I think he already is, Mike, because uh, he appears stuck in this kind of um, fortress mentality, defensive, tactically, sitting back in his own half in the first half of games, you know, sort of nullifying the the energy and creative impulses of his own team. And then they rouse themselves in the second half quite often to try and repair the damage. But when I look at Spurs, particularly in the first half of games, I don't see a team set up to play the way the rest of the top teams are in the Premier League. So if that's his brilliant theory, you know, the theory that defies convention in the Premier League, it's not really working for him. It, it looks as if he's he's limiting the potential of his team rather than unleashing it. And he's very good after games at you know, finding things and people to blame. But I've noticed that Tottenham fans are becoming a bit tired of that sort of litany of post-match explanations and excuses. And the spotlight is very much turning to him now. And people are saying, well, you've got very good players out there. Why aren't they playing to their potential? That's true, which is the art of management, of course. A clue to one of our aims on this show lies in its name, the Football People podcast. There's so much more to Pep Guardiola than meets the eye. He gave us a glimpse into the man behind the manager. Well, welcome, Pep. We had Mikel Arteta on the podcast recently, and he spoke to me with great respect and great intensity about what he learned from working with you and watching you. He talked about your passion, your humanity, and almost how much you gave yourself to the job. Do you see something of yourself in him? Wow, will be so present to us. I say thank you for uh, his words. I would see completely uh, the same. And I'm so satisfied that, uh, about his success because uh, still he doesn't know how much me, I learned being alongside to him in these two years, two years and a half when we were together. So, so the important is that everybody, everybody, I would say that we were with him here working. When he started in Arsenal, that was a tough period because the results didn't come. Any of us will have doubts, any doubts. If the club, Arsenal, could rely on him at the end, could take, like right now we are seeing in this season and we are going to see in the future. Great coaches, you know, they leave legacies. Not just in trophies, though, is it? It's the people that they influence. Is that something that you're conscious of? I don't know. I would say, I would say arrogant again and present to us again, so how bad is listen, you know? I am listening, sitting, listening podcasts mm. and seeing one one talking about himself, how good he is or how influence took on the other ones. 
anyone, at, at least myself, I don't know the influence for the other ones. So mm. I, I gave or I took... Uh, a part of that, I would say that when we live with the other people, you take influence for everyone. So that is, is obvious. When you are in contact, you talk, you share emotions and, and good moments, bad moments. So this kind of thing did happen. So when, when I give to the other one really one, <coughs> honestly, I would like to say yes, I'm a genius and I did everything, but I cannot tell you because I don't know. It's when the people say, the fans think about that, and it's just subject. The fans think this about that. So I don't know what the, the fans think. Mm -hmm. How many millions of fans we have, and everyone has his own opinion, so I don't know. Mm. You both come from similar cultures, Basque and, and, and Catalan. Now, from my experience watching football in those areas, football is about family, it's about community, it's about identity. Does that background come across in the sort of teams that you create and the football that you play? The heart. Uh, absolutely. So I am where I was born. I am where I learned in the, my young ages. When I was a ball boy in Barcelona, when I was in academy, of course, with the managers I had, for the culture of my Catalonia, Catalonia was there. So absolutely, absolutely. But I traveled to Germany, and some of the German culture is in with me, and definitely. I will be an English person for the rest of my life. A lot of things, I've been already seven years here. A lot of things I learned for the, you have, is part of my football as well, a part of my life, definitely. Because he also said that you taught him about the loneliness of leadership. Uh, Does that become easier to cope with the longer you're in the role that you're in? Yeah. Oh, Marcelo Bielsa, wrote a lot about or express anyone better than him express the lonely of the the managers so how you are completely abandoned when the results are, are not there you are completely alone alone with your thoughts and there may be one or two people into a staff three times but completely abandoned for all the players mainly for all the staff and the media, of course, get the media just if you win, you're good and you lose, you're bad. So this is nothing changed everywhere. Mm -hmm. But mainly 90, 90, 90% long, long gifts you are completely, mm -hmm. completely alone. One of the secrets I extend the contract here is because I have more friends close to me here working with me and I feel a little less abandoned mm -hmm. that you, you are there. You've always had Manel with you, Manel yeah. Astiarte. Can you describe what he gives you in, in terms of the, the assistance that he gives you? Yeah. Is it too easy to say, well, he's Pep's life coach, tells you about people? Yeah, you could say, yeah, right. We need one eye contact to know exactly what we are thinking, all of us, uh, ourselves. Uh, we need to just one moment to see if something wrong has happened or something is good. And with Manel, I'm not feeling abandoned. <laughs> that is the question. And, and that's why we are since many, many years here, because it's beyond our relation of working together in football. It's beyond of that. Mm -hmm. He's renowned as a body language expert. And I noticed that you've been speaking about that recently, about looking at the body language of your players in training. Is that part of the process of trying to work out how the World Cup has affected players? Mm. You know, some have come back, or is it just mm. something you do all the time? Yeah, normally World Cup, you win a World Cup and have to have holidays, one month and a half, and after you come back, reset and, and start again. He is completely different in some way. But it's not just the body language to say for, you know, right now. It's always. And every activity you do in your life, when your body language is not correct, it's impossible to do it well. Impossible. Arts, paint, actor, actors, directors, every activity like the talent has to be expressed quite often. The body language is grumpy, sad, and a little bit depressed. And impossible. You cannot succeed. You cannot succeed. From there, we start to build tactics. But we four in the back, five in the back, right, left, uh, long balls, box to box, whatever you want. 
first is how you approach the situation. And the guys like is positive and react to difficulties in the bad moments, in the one action bad moment is, I'm here again, I'm here again. What give you back is the body language, is the, your mood, is your, except you're a human being, except you're not perfect, except that you make a mistake, except that the opening is better. And always this turn, turn back, like it happened in football, in life, continually, because anyone is happy 24 hours, every minute. So you need to be unhappy, you have to be grumpy, you have to be bad to give Billy credit how happy I am right now, only the body language will, will give you that. You're obviously renowned as a, you know, for your tactical innovations. Looking forward, in the, you know, pretty much the short term, are we now looking at where will the next advance be? Will it be in the person, in the human being? Because you know, I know there's quite a lot of work going on in looking at the emotional response of players to big games, you know, Champions League, semi-finals, finals. So you get to know the person and how he deals with the pressures of those occasions. And once you know how he deals with it, you can work accordingly. Is that a fair description, do you think? I do. I'm completely different when we start. Like, it looks like either the win one title is at the end of the world. Uh, for the pressure we have in Barcelona, or I have to do this and that, and that's completely different, of course. So I had the feeling I've done, I could never ever, when I started expect my career, have done more than blessed and grateful for all happened in my career, as a, not just for a player, as a manager. So if tomorrow I have to quit and I have to go home, I'll be the most satisfied person. Right now, that my priorities is Winning because it's intrinsic in our competitor nature. But I want to be satisfied seeing in my team, in the relation that we have with each other, in the locker room and everything, you know, being who we are. That's all. That's all. I learned that if you want to win, you have to never forget who you are and behave how you are. The rest, the rest is, a, is already written in the destiny. How many times I've fought for nothing in and we couldn't achieve it. And the other was lazy and doing it happened and forgot the destiny I wanted. Thousand times. Mm. So the related to so as much you work, you will have the benefit. Bullshit. No. <laughs> you have to follow the dreams, you have to do the passion to follow the passion, but it's written. It's as much you do, there are other people. I don't play alone. There are an opponent, they can be better. That made me feel my life a little bit more. When I'm disappointed against Southampton, giving all the credit to Southampton, but apparently it looks like he cannot do a good job. It's because why should we be there when we are who we are not? So we have to do... I want my team being ourselves. And after you don't win because Arsenal and the same is better. I will call Miguel one minute later, I will say congratulations, you deserve it. Next year I will try to do another battle. So always are related for the society, for the kids, for our kids, for the schools. Just the winner is the best. Mm. This is to, so dangerous. I spoke to Graham Potter a couple of days ago, and he spoke about the value of the struggle. What have you learned in the bad times, the struggle? What are the great lessons that you learn out of adversity? First of all, I would say I feel comfortable. How I handled the defeat, for example, in Newcastle, Southampton, or when we were at the Champions League. The next day is the next time I like to handle. I feel comfortable. I don't feel weird and in that type of situation. Apart is because always I believe in that star playing football, even in good times, that the success is the exception. Mm. People lose more than win in life, in a sport, definitely. So that's why when I lose a game, always I think, what is the reason why? Our behaviors, the opponent was better, bad decisions. And always I think it's part of life. But it looks like now, so you lose, you have to be sad. Yes. You are the only sport that the people recommend if you are able to continue doing your job or you don't continue your job. People external that don't know exactly anything about what happened inside, they suggest if you are authority, moral authority to tell you you have to be sad. What's the matter with you, my friend? <laughs> so you are not. <laughs> For what? For few results, you, you lose more than, than you win. 
And Graham, maybe the spec is what happened, it just, if he has the reliance on the hierarchy, he will succeed. No doubt about that. He's now hands and the destiny for the other, because the results are not good at the moment. But what they have done in Brighton, tell me a reason why he could not reply it in Chelsea. Of course he can do it. Mm. You are in a, an all-consuming profession. You left it for a year for your sabbatical. And then you've always spoke about getting out when you're 50. Will you know when your energy is expended, when your, when your mental resources are gone and vanished? Will you know when to leave? I will back home. Yeah. I think in Barcelona. But like in that moment, I think it will be in a few years, our kids will be already independent with my wife. I had the feeling that uh, Maybe we'll do another sabbatical year in another place, not in New York, maybe another place, but alone, her and, and myself. But uh, I will be back uh, to Barcelona. I missed uh, 25 degrees, 11 months. I missed the food, the sea, the smell of the sea. <laughs> open the curtains in the morning and see that light in your eyes, like you almost you cannot open it. And a lot of friends that I miss came back to a stadium from Barcelona to sit in there and watch the games the clap of my heart and enjoy the football there and and do many, many things that still right now I'm not able to do for my time, like learn to cook, for example, and travel in places I've not been and play golf every single day, eat as much as possible to become a good 90 kilos grandfather, these kind of things I would do. Okay, as a final question then, are you then going back to your childhood what made you fall in love with football as a boy? And what keeps you in love with football as a man? I was born in a little, little village. Like it was no traffic light in the moment. Maybe it was one car or two cars in, the, in there. And we could play 24 hours on the street. That The love came from there. And the second, uh, Johan Cruyff helped me to understand the game to discover a little bit the trickets or the secrets or the passion I used to want to see my team play come from there. And as a man, like, the opportunity to live this life. So, something that you like in the best places in the world, like was in Catalonia, in Munich, in Germany, here, in England. So, I'm blessed. So, as I said before, everything happened, I have to quit tomorrow. I could not be more more satisfied. As much as still I have, I want to prove myself again. I want to make React the team playing better again and again, or make the team play better again, 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 again. And have that feeling, and still I have that feeling, still I will be involved. Well, thank you very much. You're very pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, I have to say, I found that fascinating. Now, Paul, you've worked very closely with Sir Alex Ferguson. Do you see any similarities between the two? Because the great coaches tend to be as fascinating away from the game as they are within it. That's true, Mike. That was an, a, a fascinating interview. I, I, very rarely have I heard Pep Guardiola be that relaxed and insightful about himself, not just the game. What are the defining characteristics of great managers? Well, one is that they're very cerebral, they're deeply intelligent, they can kind of see into people and they're problem solvers. They can also renew and go again with their teams, maintain the standards, the hunger, recruit well, ease the right people out, refresh the enthusiasm of a squad, and they're never satisfied. And, you know, Alec Ferguson used to say that the joy of winning lasted one day and then he was restless again. He was thinking about how to maintain his dominance. I mean, that must be a curse in a way. You, you sometimes, you're sometimes grateful that you're not like that because you must put so much pressure on yourself to maintain these incredibly high standards. And now in a league where, you know, everybody's at your heels or at least five or six clubs are, everybody's spending, everybody's improving all the time. So to stay where City are, or have been, even with the resources they have, is a great testament to Guardiola because he has the, the stamp of a great manager in that he keeps renewing it and he keeps refreshing it and he keeps it going. And as Johnny said earlier on, the 
problem he has this year is it looks as if, leaving aside the Haaland tactical kind of issue, it looks as if the intensity level in the last couple of weeks or months has dropped just enough to give them a problem. Yeah, I purposely began by trying to investigate that dynamic between Pep Guardiola and Mikel Arteta, who obviously is his principal rival this season, Johnny. It's something that I know you've looked at. Mm. What's your take on that relationship between the two? I think in football terms, it's closer than we realise. It's intensely close, in fact. It's it's almost a lifelong football relationship in, in the sense of, our, at least in terms of Arteta's career span. You know, they're not just two people who were master and apprentice as coaches at, at Manchester City, but they were master and apprentice as, as footballers. You know, the young Arteta arrived from the Basque country at, at Barcelona at the age of 15, and he was told, you must observe and, and try and mimic and copy and, and, and emulate this guy who's playing, uh, they call it pivot for you know, number six, I think as we call it now, in our first team. And that player, of course, was, was Guardiola. So under... Arteta understudied him as a footballer, made his debut coming on at the age of 16 for Guardiola and modelled himself on Guardiola even even as a player. And then, of course, they, I mean, they never lost touch. You, you sort of fast forward sort of 15 years when, when Arteta's then the experienced pro at Arsenal and, and, and he, he knows Pep Guardiola and his brother still socially, but, but Guardiola calls him to ask him about a Chelsea team that, that Barca were about to play and Arteta goes through some of his tactical thoughts and, and, and insights and, and Guardiola's blown away and remembers this this kid and how bright he was and 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 the the relationship sort of really picks up seriously but back then you know Guardiola had him in his staff as soon as he took over at Manchester City within a couple of months he was giving Arteta license to do the tactics and 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 shape the the, the approach for certain games and I mean, I, th- I thought one of the brilliant parts of the interview, Mike, was was how genuinely and humbly Guardiola talks about Arteta and talks about not just Arteta learning from him, but him learning from Arteta. And and there's a sense too, which you very rarely see in sport, that that you know clearly Pep's an absolute winner. But if if he's not going to win it, part of him would be thrilled to see Arteta win it. And I think that's really rare. And I, I found that really sort of lovely and interesting. So these two guys are, it'd be wrong to say that, I think Arteta was seen as the Guardiola clone when he took over at Arsenal. It's more, he's very much his own man. Anyone that's dealt with him as a person would, would know that, but he's, he's certainly someone that has, has learnt most of his ideas in football in part by, by studying Guardiola and then adding his own personality to it. And it's one of the, the great ingredients of this title race. You know, you mentioned him being, you know, his winning mentality. Paul, one of the quotes which struck me was, success is the exception. Now, that's the perspective of a serial winner, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think he, they all know how hard it is to do what City are currently doing. They, they, they you know, they all know what it, what it takes from you. I was particularly interested in the fact that, um, he talked about the loneliness of the job as well, didn't he, Mike? And he said, You're mm. com- he said, you are completely alone with your thoughts. And a large part of the reason for him re-signing at Manchester City was to keep his friends around him. He's found a community that he can, you know, uh, uh, have around him and, and support him. That reminded me, you mentioned Alec Ferguson earlier on, that reminded me of him saying that he used to sit in his office in the afternoon on his own, hoping someone would knock on the door. <laughs> no, no, one, no one ever did because he was quite a forbidding character and they thought they'd be intruding, but he used to sit there on his own with his thoughts, a bit like Guardiola, just hoping someone would come in and have a chat with him and a cup of tea. So it's, 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 it's a lonely life and it, obviously it's an extremely high-pressure high life. And the religion is success. And if you have relentless, uncompromising success as your religion, it's a tough life as well as a glamorous one. Mm. It really struck me when he spoke about the sense of abandonment that he felt when he lost, he he name-checked Marcello Bielsa for articulating that loneliness. You know, you deal with him on a fairly regular basis, uh, Johnny. When he appears in public, 
he seems to be a completely different character to the one who comes across in this interview. Yeah, that's true. Certainly that that kind of poetic, as you said in the intro, and, and softer side, he can't show that in press conferences. But I think, and, and, and this will go back to Fergie as well and, and, and all the great managers. Managers are actors to a certain extent. They... They have to be, they have to understand what front to put on to what particular audience. And there's certainly a press conference where we're dealing with things. And the pep you see there is is I mean, he's he's loosened up over the years, but he's he's quite he's quite professional and doesn't give too much, certainly doesn't give much weakness away. But then, you know, there's also the the the, the team talks and, and and how you deal with the players. One one of the things I found fascinating watching both the, the City Amazon Doc and the City the the Arsenal one is how similar Arteta and Guardiola are in in their mannerisms and their team talk. But you talk about loneliness. What you see are two guys bounding into a dressing room, putting intense energy into a team talk, hopping around with the whiteboards and stuff, and then clapping the hands and going very quickly. And it struck me watching those about the loneliness where you you go in. And you almost put on this act of being, we're all in it together and, and I'm the leader of you guys. But you have to leave the team and you have to leave them to themselves. And you can't be, I mean, we know managers, examples, who've tried to be one of the lads too much and it's players hate that. So, you know, those bonds, they have to give the illusion of those bonds sometimes, but have to then go and, go and be aloof again. And it's a strange life. I think it takes a certain set of mental resources to do it that very few people have. but. But clearly, Pep Guardiola, the, the depth of his character, he's, he's, he's got those resources. Yeah, we're recording this, Paul, on, on Wednesday, which is his 51st birthday. How long do you give him at City before he sets off, to use his phrase, to smell the sea? Yeah, I love that passage in the interview. I mean, I, he made me nostalgic for Barcelona, and I don't even come from there. He talked, he, he talked of it being 25 degrees for 11 months of the year, the food, the smell of the sea, the light. He's probably getting some of those things in Manchester, but not, certainly, not, <laughs> certainly not all of them. And, yeah, we ignore their lives. We ignore their sort of wider... We think about them only as football managers winning and losing games, but one day life is going to intervene for Pep Guardiola or re-intervene and he's going to want to go somewhere else and live a different life. And good luck to him. I think, obviously, at the moment, he feels like he has an incredibly strong foundation for success. He's probably got a bit of work to do to get this team going again. He's probably even got some long-term changes to make, but at the moment... You can tell he was, he's absolutely loath to walk away from the thing he's built. This is another problem with great managers. They build something wonderful and then they don't want to walk away from it. They don't want to hand it on to somebody else. And you can understand that. Sure. And um, you know, talking of building things, Manchester United, Johnny, they're at Arsenal on Sunday. Is that, you know, in the context of what you said earlier about Arsenal probably being title favourites, is this one of those landmark games for the season? It is. It's. I mean, to use a cliche, it'll tell us a lot about both sides, won't it? For Arsenal, the landmarks are are, are going to come thick and fast. It's this United game and and the two that they they face against City in the league. And you think we'll navigate them, and and they can only you know do a Devon lock. It's a brilliant clash because it is the two inform sides. And Manchester United have, have just emerged as. I don't know if any of you guys saw. I didn't see them being in the title mix at all, not even no. a couple of weeks ago. So they've the, the rapid development under Ten Hag has been something of a wonder. And they, well, I was going to say, you know, we'll, we'll, I don't put it this way. I don't see United succumbing. I don't, I don't necessarily see them winning the game, but I don't see them. We saw under Solskjaer a team that could reach a level at a certain point and then there was a ceiling. I don't see that in this United team. I see development. And even if they don't win on Sunday, I'd expect them to to do well and show enough in the game that there's ongoing progress. And it's just, you know, it's just mouthwatering from, from all sorts of points of view. And uh, yeah, it, it's two, again, you, know, you come back to the managers, but it's it's the two contenders for, for manager of the season, probably along with uh, with Thomas Frank at the moment. Yeah, with Arsenal, Paul, your take on them, obviously Johnny was was very complimentary about them. I'm really interested in, in the progress of Odegaard. He seems to be fulfilling 
the potential and the, and the hype that took him to Real Madrid, doesn't he? Yeah, he's restored elements, uh, Arsenal's element of surprise. Uh, he can change a passage of play in a way that, you know, surprises you in the best possible way. I mean, I, I, I like watching overlapping full backs and strong centre backs, good goalkeepers. I mean, I certainly like watching goal scorers, but the players I really want to watch are, you know, Odegaard and De Bruyne, the people who can change a passage of play with a pass that nobody else on the pitch can see. He's absolutely brilliant at that. And he's he's developed this authority and confidence in his game. He's robust enough to, you know, to play in the Premier League. His, his work rate is extremely good. He's got a lovely attitude. But most of all, I think he he just adds that extra creative element to Arsenal's forward play and and, and certainly makes them more entertaining. And the good news is, is that he also makes them more effective because some of those passes will cut teams to shreds. Yeah. Can I just stay with you, Paul, if I may? And I'm switching a little bit horses mid-race here, but talking about United again. The shadow of the Glazers, if we didn't realise their intentions, the fact that they've actually set up shop in Davos tells us everything they want to do about uh, selling that football club. Uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe of Ineos, you know, at least he's a boyhood Manchester United fan, I suppose. You know, there's some talk about even him, you know, taking over by April. Where are we going with football? Is this just modern football writ large yet again? Oh, definitely. I mean, if you set up shop at Davos, it, what that says to me is that you're ideally looking to sell to a nation state because yeah. only a nation state can afford to, you know, give you the price you're asking. And Sir Jim Ratcliffe may well be capable of paying or willing to pay the Glazers the price they're asking. But this is going to be an astronomical deal when you take into account um, the debt burden on the club and the and the profit that the Glazers are looking for. I... I I know that people are suggesting that it might go through reasonably quickly, but when the potential buyer looks at the f actual figure, it's going to be terrifying. And presumably, as, you, as I say, that's why they went to Davos, because they thought, well, we can only talk to the richest people in the world here. Otherwise, it's, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to sell it. And, and this is a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a sad state. It's a sad position for Manchester United to be in, to be on the market in this way. The comfort as Johnny said earlier on, is that the team against all the odds has sort of transformed itself under Ten Hag. I thought I thought Ten Hag would just fall into the vortex, the old Trafford vortex, and never be seen again. But he's done incredibly well. He's imposed his authority on the on the team and the squad. He's he's made them coherent, he's made them consistent and committed again. So I, I really admire him for what he's done. But off the pitch, I still think the sale of this club is is potentially going to be very unseemly. Yeah, well, there's a lot of speculation also, Johnny, swirling around Liverpool's potential ownership in the future. Liverpool at home to Chelsea in the BT Sport lunchtime game on Saturday. You look at Liverpool, OK, they made a small step forward winning at Wolves in the FA Cup. Is this a, a long-term or a, certainly a medium-term problem that is facing Jurgen Klopp? Yeah, I, I used the word transition earlier on about City. Liverpool are certainly in transition now. If there's a positive for them, it's it's that the last couple of months have gone so badly that it's prompted a recognition that they need to reinvent. And I think we'll see them reinvent with, with a younger group of players, which there's a younger team on the pitch against Wolves in the Cup and, 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 and you saw a return to Liverpool's intensity and you know horribleness to to play against with their with their pressing and ability to to spring counterattacks on you. Klopp's not going to change his ways. He's just going to change the personnel that that that, that sort of implement those ways. And I see the, the the last couple of months of this season as being the the prelude to if he gets if there's a takeover, I mean that's the caveat and there's the money. I think he's already used the phrase a summer of change. That's that's the route that we're going to be going down with Liverpool with a much younger team. Mm. What do you make of what's going on at Chelsea, Paul? Certainly, you know the chaos theory of recruitment seems to be um, being applied. Was it twenty-seven players? I think used this season so far. You know, we had Graham Potter on the program last week, and the analogy I used at the time was, you know, he came across as being a swan, very serene on the surface, <laughs> but paddling like mad underneath. Where are Chelsea going, and how long would it take to to get anywhere? 
<laughs> How long would it take to answer that question, Mike? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Four hundred million pounds on transfers. They've just bought a winger and a centre back. I do feel watching them that uh, whatever problems Graham Potter has in balancing it all out are added to by the fact that some of those players aren't helping him one little bit, are they, with their attitude mm. and their work rate? I think some of them look like they're just trying not to be noticed, really, you know, and going through the motions. Uh, without Thiago Silva, I think that, that team would fall apart. He's absolutely the rock of that team. And it's, it's, it's quite alarming to see the owners approach you know the ownership of this club in, in in the way that they have thinking i don't even know why they're doing it I, I don't understand the the extravagance i don't understand the this idea that you just keep buying without thinking about the positions you're buying in and what the manager needs and how you build a, a team with an identity they just seem to be on this um supermarket trolley dash and Graham Potter is left with the problem of trying to make sense of it all at a time when the, the, the club has a very long injury list. So I feel, I feel sorry for him. It's not really the next big job that he would have liked after Brighton because, you know, he's been handed a partnership with some very, very capricious owners. And I just hope he finds a way through it because his, his talent as a manager is, is being obscured by the sort of chaos around him. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's an interesting contrast, Johnny, up at Newcastle. You know, they're at Palace on Sunday before the League Cup semi-final at Southampton next week. They're taking a more measured, less expensive route, aren't they? Which I, I would assume one or two things, really. That means that Dan Ashworth is having an influence, but also there's a training ground dividend you know, Eddie Howe working with that defence, the meanest defence in the Premier League. How impressed have you been by the way they've handled it rather than just the results that have come from it? Hugely, because it's the hardest thing in the world to resist sort of consumption. And they, they, they've got the money to go out and do what Chelsea are doing. And they've resisted that admirably. And whereas Chelsea seem to, they're taking that kind of accountant's approach to seeing players as assets and you just collect them, collect as many assets as you can and see if some appreciate. Newcastle, I've got the human element, I think, at the heart of their squad building. And that does come, I assume, from Dan Ashworth's experience and Eddie Howe's, I mean, Eddie Howe, very human-centred manager who worked with a tight group at Bournemouth and has looked to replicate that at, at, at Newcastle. So they've they've bought just enough, but, but, but not too much, so that they've kept the group small. They've kept the first team the first 11, pretty recognisable. And the units, as you say, Mike, small and intact and, and something that that, that, that Howe can, can work with on the training ground. And, and of all the contenders, they are the most, I think they're the most sort of old school, but in a good way of the lot. They remind me a bit of the Blackburn team in 95, actually, where they're not beautiful to watch. They're not bad either, but what they are is incredibly competitive and rugged and intense and no, you, you know, just don't yield anything whatsoever. And you add the synergy of the supporters to that and you've got a very powerful creation. On that note, let's look at more choppy waters, if you like. Let's call it Carnage Corner. There are a lot of managers this week who will be nervous if their phone goes, I suspect. West Ham against Everton. You know, there's a symmetry to that game. David Moyes against the club that he fashioned in his own image. Frank Lampard, former West Ham prodigy. That is a game that neither manager can afford to lose. No, I mean, those two clubs can... Perhaps they could swap managers. Maybe maybe <laughs> Moyes could go back to Everton and uh, Frank Lampard could go back to West Ham. I'm not sure they've forgiven him yet still for going to Chelsea. But, yeah, but both in a very perilous position. West Ham have lost 12 of their 19 games this season, which is a bit mystifying, really, given the progress they've made. And uh, whatever, whatever's happening there in terms of the drop-off in performance, the struggle to score goals, I mean, their goal scoring is really not very good. I don't see that the problem particularly would be solved by sacking David Moyes. I think he's already proved that he how capable he is there and what that he can do a job there. They've got other problems they need to solve and they would be better investing in David Moyes to solve those problems. Slightly different with Frank Lampard. I think that's a 
that's a more chaotic situation with the fans and uh, with the recruitment and the complete loss of direction, the antipath antipathy towards the owner. Frank Lampard's got a lot more on his plate than David Moyes in many ways. But as you said, Mike, neither can afford to lose that game. I know you know David Moyes pretty well. How do you think he's dealing with all this? Yes, I speak to David quite regularly and and he is pretty phlegmatic about it and and feels actually that despite what what we might portray in the media he feels the the owners have actually backed him quite well and there's been a a lot more calm behind the scenes there than than, than you'd imagine but he's really he is really frustrated about the gap between performances and and results i think it comes down to what paul mentioned it's goals you know they, they've played pretty well in a number of games and haven't been able to score and it's almost hard to understand why because it's coming down a lot of the time to you know just players in in moments not 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 putting the ball in the net that that can happen to teams yeah i know he's got the experience to get through this going back to his everton teams there were a couple of seasons where they took a step back to take a step forward and this is a new new squad and and there have been a couple of injuries as well. Agard being injured, I think, was was always going to be a big part of the defence. He's back now, and that helps. He will get them clear of, of relegation, I'm sure of that, if 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 they don't make a change. And I would agree that the, the problems are much more serious at Everton. Sure. Another fixture, which is a bit of a study in contrasts, Leicester against Brighton, Paul. Leicester, to be honest, have surprised me by, by slipping back into trouble. I thought they'd had enough momentum to, to keep going upwards. Um, it's a pretty much a shadow squad and Brendan Rodgers, you can see him becoming more frustrated. That contrast with Brighton is stark, isn't it? You've got Roberto De Zabi, who's actually built on Potter's legacy already. Yeah, he has. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I could tell you that when Graham Potter left, there was pessimism around whether Brighton could, you know, maintain the progress they've made, understandably, um, that pessimism has proved to be um, ill-founded because Roberto De Zerbi has actually added something to Brighton's armory, which is which is finishing, ruthlessness, goal scoring. Uh, they play at a, a, a quicker pace. He had the foundations, obviously, to to build on the style that he bought from Italy because Graham Potter had laid those foundations, but it, but he's added to them. And Brighton at the moment can afford to feel very smug, really, that they found a manager who's who came into the club and, and, and looked at what was already there and thought, well, I need to add things and has, and has been successful in that. You know, a small example would be Solly March's finishing. Solly March was really struggling with his finishing throughout his Brighton career. He scored four goals this season. Suddenly, Brighton are decisive and sharp in front of goal and they, they they weren't that that was the one weakness of graham potter's brighton teams they found a good young striker in evan ferguson who's got you know bags of potential the players like deserby he's improving people so everything's everything's rosy i agree they're, they're going leicester are going in the opposite direction in the sense that you look at them now and they play well in a game and you think oh it's over their paralysis is over they're going to start climbing back up the table and then in the, the, the following week they're awful again so you can't. You can never match two Leicester performances, and you can never see what what the exact trajectory is. But the league table tells you that it's it's downward because because like West Ham, they've lost twelve of their nineteen games. Yeah. What do you make of Leeds, Johnny? It seems to me, as an outsider, that Jesse Marsh is getting an awful lot of stick, probably primarily because he's not Marcello Bielsa. Is that fair? Well, it's not fair on him. It's a fair assessment, though, Mike. His biggest crime is not being Bielsa. But if you remove his successor, he, I think he's done a, a pretty good job. And I think you can see a different Leeds team under Jesse Marsh. And I think you can see progress over the course of this season. It's, it's quite a young team, actually. But a young team, the way they've they found some real players this year. Everyone's talked about Aronson early in the season, but Nonto looks looks terrific. Somerville looks mm. looks terrific. Rocker's very good. He's been good. And, and you look at there's such energy and sort of verve about that side. Sometimes a bit kind of unfocused, you have to say. That's the kind of heavy metal plus football that Jesse Marsh wants to play. But a team with an identity that looks like it's going somewhere. And maybe it would it would go even further if the fans could really get behind that manager and, and just a little bit more. Mm. The final fixture to look at, Bournemouth. Gary O'Neill, is he unlikely to survive a Forest win there on Saturday? I would think so, 
they've scored, they've conceded 41 goals this season, Bournemouth. That's easily the worst defensive record in the league. And um, they're going down if they carry on conceding like that. Gary O'Neill had a really beneficial effect when he first took over. That's that's faded. Uh, he At the moment, he looks a bit stranded. He looks like one of those guys who, who will be abandoned if things don't improve very quickly. And his problem is short-term problem is that Nottingham Forest are on a bit of a roll and they've they've seemed to have found some some purpose and some unity and some confidence and they you know they've won two on the trot Steve Cooper's found a formula the players seem to be enjoying themselves enjoying winning they don't look like this disparate group of individuals anymore so that gives Gary O'Neill a, a very immediate problem at the weekend yeah as Paul says Johnny you know Forest do seem to have turned the corner 15 points out of their last 10 games you know, they're still playing recruitment bingo, aren't they? Danilo has just turned up, 24th signing since promotion. Are we seeing here a real insight into Steve Cooper's ability as a manager? I think we are. And I, I mean, you know, I sort of quite glibly mentioned managers of the year. And the minute I did, about eight other candidates came to mind, to be honest. And Steve Cooper <laughs> would probably be one of them. If he won't, it won't be seen that way, of course. But when you consider. Well, if you wind back to the summer transfer window when all the players were arriving, I think any of us who've been around the block in football would have bet, well, Steve Cooper won't last more than a month or two there. And I think he's lasted by just being the person he is, not having not having the ego to then, you know, go to war with the board and go to war with the ownership to accept this is the way they want to do things and to somehow have the human skills, people skills to to gel that that huge group of players into something coherent and purposeful. That's that's extraordinary. And to retain an understanding of what he wants to do on the pitch with with new personnel. It's, a, it's an amazing job he's done. An absolutely amazing job. And if they survive, you know, my goodness, that'll be that'll be one of the great sort of seasons from from a club that's that that's come up and 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 stayed up. Because they've they've created their own, I think, their own obstacles with with that signing policy, and for him to to get over them would be amazing. All of that said, I'm I'm, I'm you know from what I read, Danilo is a, is a very very good player, and could potentially be a signing that helps raise the team. Good, but if you look around though, panic is is starting to set in. Unrealistic ambitions, unsolicited advice. And unrelenting criticism usually leads to one thing, the sacking of the manager. To be honest, I expect at least a couple of good men to go soon. Now, I'm amazed Sean Dyche is still without a job. He'll do someone the world of good if he gets the chance. In the meantime, I'd like to thank Johnny and Paul for their insight and also thank Pep Guardiola for his time. We have another big interview scheduled, so please watch this space. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 